0: I'll begin with prayer. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for today. We thank you, Lord, that we can gather together here to study your word and we can learn more about who you are and what you require of your people. We pray, Heavenly Father, that you would help us to understand what you've said through the Apostle John in his book, The Revelation of Jesus Christ. And so we pray, Lord, that you would give us good minds to think well upon your text this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well as you can see we are in Revelation chapter 7 and we are kind of continuing on from where we left off last time. Now remember in Revelation 6 we had six judgments, the seal judgments, and when we come to the seventh seal you always come to an interlude. So whether it's the seventh seal or prior to the seventh trumpet or prior to the seventh bowl you're going to have an interlude and an interlude is used by John to give more information as to what was transpiring during the 70th week of Daniel. Now, as we got into Revelation chapter 7, remember the question that was asked at the end of chapter 6 was, if the wrath has come, who is able to stand? And so in the beginning of Revelation 7, we see that there are two groups of servants. In verses 1 through 9, actually is it 1 through 8? It's 1 through 8. We have the servants who are sealed, the 144,000, they're on earth. They're going to be able to stand while God is pouring his wrath out. And you have another group in Revelation 7:9 7, through 17. They are the servants who are going to be martyred, killed, and taken to heaven. But the big picture is if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, no matter if you're on earth or if you're killed and you're brought to heaven, you're able to stand before God because of your faith in him. So again, we're looking at the 144,000 and one of the questions we're going to be wrestling with is who are these 144,000 who are sealed? And this is a very controversial topic as I will show you. So let's begin by reading the passage again. Revelation 7:4, John says this. He says, "And I heard the number of those who were sealed, 144,000, sealed from every tribe Of the sons of Israel. Now, where the debate lies in this text is over who are these 144,000 of the sons of Israel. And there's two interpretations. The first is, believe it or not, it could be Israel. (laughs) Imagine that. (laughs) Ethnic Israel, because it says that they're the sons of Israel. But there's a second interpretation that we have to take seriously, and that is Israel is really. A metaphor or symbol of the church. And so those who hold to this idea would say, well, throughout the Bible, the church is now depicted as the new Israel. Now, before we just poo-poo that idea, I want to be fair and just say, let's look at a lot of the biblical data in the New Testament. There are references where the church is likened to the new Israel and where unbelievers are even likened to being Gentiles. And so I want to look at that data And then I want to show you how I think we should come down in this text. But we want to be fair. Let's look at some of the biblical data concerning this issue issue of Israel and the church. So if you will, turn your Bibles first to Romans chapter 2. Romans chapter 2, verses 28 through 29. Now, what I'm going to be doing is I'm going to be taking you through sampling passages in the New Testament where there seems to be an allusion to the church being the new Israel. Alright, and then what we're gonna do is we're gonna in the next few slides, I'm gonna lay out three things that we have to keep straight to get this issue right. So let's begin in Romans two twenty eight through twenty-nine. Here's an example of a passage that seems to indicate that the new Jew is simply a believer in Jesus Christ. Romans two twenty eight through twenty nine. Paul says, For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh. But he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that which is of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the letter. And his praise is not from men, but from God. So notice in that text here, you have a true Jew is one who is not outwardly, formally, a person who just follows Mosaic covenant. One who's been physically circumcised. So it's not merely a formal external religion. But what Paul is saying is it's now a Jew is truly one who's been circumcised on the inside. And that's the great promise that we saw God give to his people all the way back in Deuteronomy chapter 30. He commanded them to circumcise their own hearts. By the way, the primary reference to a circumcised heart is one that can be soft to God, one that can believe in him and therefore can also obey. So I always think of a circumcised heart as a heart that can believe and obey. You're not saved by obedience, but your obedience is evidence that you really believe, right? Think of the analogy again of the guy going over, I've used this a thousand times, but the guy that goes over the Niagara Falls with the wheelbarrow, and he has the wheelbarrow on this tightrope. He's a tightrope artist. And he asked the question, how many believe that I can go over the tightrope over Niagara Falls with this wheelbarrow? And they all clap. They say, yes, we believe it. And He goes and he does it. Well, then he says, well, who wants to get in? And all of a sudden people are like, wow, the Vikings are on or the Buffalo Bills or whatever. And they, well, do they really believe? See, if you really believe, you get in. And that's the relationship between faith and obedience. So the idea of having a circumcised heart is one where people would really believe in Yahweh. They would trust him and therefore they would obey. All right. So circumcision of the heart then is something that God does through his spirit. And so he enables people, therefore, to believe. And so Paul is just pointing out that a Jew is no longer one who is simply under the old covenant, formally external, but one who has truly been regenerated by the Spirit and has therefore come to faith in Jesus Christ. That's the implication, okay? But nonetheless, you have the true Jew now who is not what a Jew was formerly. So there's some evidence that, yes, you can look at believers as being, in a sense, a new Israel in that regard. Look at Romans 9, 6. Turn your Bibles there. Romans 9, 6. Just fast forward. And by the way, we'll be handling these passages more in-depthly when we come to them in Romans. But I just want to give you kind of a gloss of some of the data. Romans 9, 6. Here Paul is answering the question, Well, how is it that some Israelites missed God's gospel? That is the good news in the Old Testament that would lead to salvation through Jesus Christ. And so in Romans 9, 6, Paul says, But it is not as though the word of God has failed, for for they are not all Israel who are descended from Israel. And so here clearly I think Paul is showing that, look, Israel is wider than just those who are born Jews in ethnic Israel. It's those who come to Jesus Christ. And so, at the end of time, you're going to have an eschatological Israel that's made up of every single believer, Jew and Gentile. And they're the ones who are going to reign in the land. All right. Now, I want to show you also that Gentiles are sometimes referred to as, or used as an imagery of sinners. In other words, if someone's acting like a Gentile, they're acting like a sinner. Now, why is that important? Because it shows us, not only are believers in Jesus Christ sometimes referred to as true Jews or as the new Israel, but sometimes you have people who are sinners who are simply likened to the nations, the Gentiles. So, for example, turn your Bibles to 1 Peter 2.9. Here I'm actually going to show you another reference to where the church is likened to the new Israel. Bob was talking about this in his wonderful Sunday school sessions about the priesthood of every believer. And so now th- what was used to refer to Israel is now being referred, used to refer to all believers. 1 Peter two nine says, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim that the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into His marvelous light? So there is Isaiah forty three twenty being cited. It was formerly cited of Israel; they were God's chosen race and a priesthood and a holy nation. Well, now it's being that title is being given to believers in Jesus Christ. Okay, turn a little bit for forward, more forward in First Peter, First Peter four three. Here I'm going to show you the Gentile reference. First Peter four three. Peter says, For the time is already past. I'm sorry, for the time already past is sufficient for you to have carried out the desire of the Gentiles, having pursued a course of sensuality, lust, drunkenness, carousing, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. So notice there, if you're doing wickedly, you're acting like what? A Gentile. Now Notice that Peter's speaking to people who are ethnically Gentiles, primarily. They're, they're people who are non-Jews, who are Christians, who are living in Asia Minor. So clearly, to live like a Gentile is a metaphor that just simply says you're acting like the world. And so, the opposite of that, of course, would to be one who acts like the new Israel, who is one who is a tr- trusting in Jesus Christ, trusting in the promises of God. Now, here comes the coup de grace, or is my... Brother would say the coup de grâce, right? <laughs> Those engineers, you can't teach them anything. Galatians 6:15 6, through 16. If you turn your Bibles to Galatians 6:15 6, through 16, I apologize, I'm struggling with some allergies, um, but hopefully the next freeze will take care of that, whenever that may happen. Galatians six fifteen through 16. Here Paul says, For neither is circumcision anything, nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. Now let's just stop there for a moment. The new creation, of course, are, are those who are created in Christ Jesus. Remember at the fall of Adam and Eve, you have, from that point forward, God determined to bring about a new creation through his seed promise. Remember the seed of the woman is going to crush the serpent. And so now what's important is to be part of this new creation. So circumcision doesn't matter. That was an outward sign of the Messiah to come through the lineage of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Judah, David. But uncircumcision doesn't matter either. You don't get kudos before God for either one. But what matters is if you've come to Jesus. Well, then he says in verse 16, he says, And those who will walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. Now, notice the big kicker here is this phrase, the Israel of God. Who is that referring to? Well, it could refer to the church. It could refer to Israel. Or it could refer to what's called eschatological Israel. That'd be every Jew and Gentile believer. Now, I won't give you the proper interpretation here because I'm still wrestling with it myself. It's a difficult text. There's a lot of issues that have to go into interpreting this passage properly. But if I were to lean towards an interpretation, I would say it's the church. I would say that the chi, the and there, is used as an a sense of chi, which would say, namely, the church. Or, I'm sorry, namely, the Israel of God. And so I think we have to put our cards on the table as premillennialists, as those who see a clear distinction between Israel and the church, and to say, yes, there are times when the biblical authors use imagery In the New Testament, that say, yeah, the church is likened to Israel, and unbelievers are likened to Gentiles. But that's not the final word on the issue. Okay? And so I'm going to come back to that in just a moment in the next few slides. But first of all, I want to deal with who are the 144,000 here? Are they Israel or are they the church? Now, clearly, we've seen New Testament data where sometimes the church can be referred to as the New Israel, But in context, remember, when we're interpreting a passage, we always want to stay with the immediate context. So think of your hermeneutics like a circle. When you're doing hermeneutics, the first thing you want to do is look at the bullseye, which is the immediate context of the passage, and then broaden out to see within the same book what the author is saying about the same subject, the same topic. Okay. Well, then from that, you would go to wider books in the New Testament that the same author has written. In other words, it's better to understand how John uses his language than it is to see how Paul uses it. Do you you see what I'm saying? Because John may use it differently sometimes than Paul. Now, if you have exhausted all of what John has said in the New Testament, then you start broadening out to other New Testament sources. And then from there, you broaden out to the Old Testament. Now, in saying that, one helpful tip, too, is always to go to the Septuagint. The Septuagint is the Old Testament translation in the Greek because a lot of times the New Testament writers will be alluding to something from the Old Testament. Is that that clear? So here's what I want to point out. Notice in this passage, again, we're talking about the servants of God. Who was able to stand during the pouring out of God's wrath? There's two groups. There's the 144,000, Revelation 7, verses 1 through 8. But then you have another group. In verses 9 through 17. And notice how they are described. This is the second group. We're going to come to this next week. Lord willing. Revelation 7, 9. John writes, after these things I looked. So this is after he's described the 144,000. So notice the after these things. He's on to something new now. After these things I looked. And behold. A great multitude which no one could count. Now stop there. Notice up above in Revelation 7, 4 he had a specific number in mind, 144,000. But now he's talking about a multitude that was, what, too numerous to count. Okay, so now just think about it. If John wanted to refer back to the 144,000, why didn't he just simply say, oh, by the way, now regarding the 144,000, I also saw this. But he doesn't do that. Now he's talking about a multitude that no one could count. And he notices what he says, from every nation... And all tribes and peoples and tongues standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes and palm branches were in their hands. Notice the phrase, nations and all tribes and peoples and tongues. That would seem to be an indication of the Gentile nations, would it not? Of all nations. So now it's specifically not just those of Israel, but it's those of every nation. Again, if John had wanted to say that these are the 144,000, he could have simply referred back And use that phrase, but he didn't. So I think clearly here, what John is showing us is, oh yeah, by the way, in Israel, there's 144,000 that are sealed, and we see them come again in Revelation 14, where we have a proleptic look at the millennial kingdom, where Jesus Christ will be on the Mount of Olives with them. So they're going to come up again, but he sets them aside and he says, okay, well now we also know that there are Gentiles from all the nations. Yes, they're going to be martyred, but they're also able to stand before God. Why? Because they're believers in Jesus. So whether you're an Israelite and you're sealed, one of the 144,000, or you're someone who's part of the Gentile nations and you're being martyred, what matters is if you believe in Jesus. That's how you're able to stand. Yeah, Mike. I just want to mention that uh, this verse here is such a comfort um, because when we feel like, You know, it's just such a small remnant. And we talk about the the narrow way, you know, the narrow gate. The road is, or the gate is narrow, and uh, not few find it. And broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many find it. It seems like when we're talking to so many people, I I start thinking, how narrow is this gate? And then and how many people are going to be there? But then you come to this verse, and it's a number no one can count. Right. And and it's a great comfort, because it's like... We feel like we're an island, yes. but there's going to be a number no one can count in heaven. Right. So it's yeah. a comfort. Well said, yeah. Mike. What yeah. a great point. And you know, and keep in mind, just to reinforce your idea, you know, in Revelation seven nine all the way to the end of the chapter, those who are comprised of the multitude are strictly those who are being taken, or murdered, martyred. Maybe would be a better way of saying it. Out of the tribulation period, so the idea is there's a wider number of believers than just that. So, yeah, very well said. That's very encouraging. We need encouraging words like that. Yeah. So I think clearly, here's my point, dear ones. Clearly in the context, I think this passage is referring to the ethnic nation of Israel. That's why he talks about 12,000 coming from each tribe. He could have clearly stated in verses 9 all the way to the end of the chapter 7 that the multitude from every nation was the same, but they're clear he doesn't do that. And so I think we have to see a distinction between Israel and the nations. Now, let's go back to the issue, though, as to the relationship of Israel and the church. And over the years that I've been teaching, I've really come up with three different ideas that I think we have to keep straight. And if we get any of these three areas wrong, we're going to be goofed up as to the relationship between Israel and the church. And so if we keep these three things straight in our minds, it'll keep us from going into error. Uh, one error would be to say, well, you know, all of the same distinctions, Jews and Gentiles, they still exist today. There was one plan of God for salvation in the old, a new plan in the new. They're completely distinct. There's no continuity. Israel and the church. Israel's is the people of the earth. Uh, the church is the people of heaven. Uh, there's a, no, we can't go there. If you're going to be one who belongs to God, whether it be Abraham or a new covenant believer, you're a believer in Jesus Christ. Jesus says, Abraham rejoiced when he saw my day. He saw it from afar and was glad, right? Um, But on the other hand, we can't say that the church has completely replaced Israel and there's no plan for it. So these are the things that we have to keep in mind. So let's begin with number one. Only those who trust in Jesus Christ can be part of God's people, all right? Meaning that they're the only ones who can be saved. They're the only ones who comprise the people of God and will enter into the kingdom, We see evidence of this in Galatians 3.29. Notice the conditional language. Paul says, and if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's descendants, heirs, according to promise. Now, what's interesting is in the Greek, here we have a conditional sentence. I think it's a first-class conditional. Paul's assuming this to be the case on behalf of his audience. He's assuming that they do belong to Christ. And if, what's the implication? If you belong to Christ, then what? Well, then you're a seed, literally in the Greek, you're a seed of Abraham. Well, wait a minute. I thought a seed of Abraham was someone who was born physically to Abraham. Well, that's not what Paul's saying. Paul is saying, if you believe in Jesus Christ, you're a seed of Abraham. You're one of his descendants. And therefore, what? Well, you're going to be in the kingdom with him, with Abraham, with Isaac and Jacob. All right, so literally in the Greek, you could render it this way. If you are of Christ... Then you are a seed of Abraham according to promise. That's what he's saying. All right? Very important. So a believer in Jesus is the one who, therefore, is a true descendant of Abraham. Romans 4, 10 through 11. Here Paul is asking the question of how the righteousness that Abraham had, how was it given to him? How was it credited to his account? Romans 4, 10 through 11. He says, how then was it credited? While he was circumcised or uncircumcised. So let's stop there. Let's remember when Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. When does that occur? Well, the passage is in Genesis 15, 6. Well, when does Abraham receive circumcision, the sign of the covenant? It's in Genesis 17. So here Paul is going to be making the argument that, wait, when Abraham was saved, it was nothing that he did. There was no circumcision that he had complied with. It was by faith alone. That's the idea. So he says, how then was it credited, while he was circumcised or uncircumcised? He says, well, not while circumcised, but while uncircumcised. And he received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of the faith which he had while uncircumcised. Now here's the purpose. So that he might be the father of all who believe without being circumcised, that righteousness might be credited to them. So at the end of the day, what matters is you believe in the seed, the Messiah. So it doesn't matter if you're Jew or Gentile. What matters is if you have faith in Jesus Christ. That's all that matters. Right? Let me tell you a story. Years ago, I was working at a prophecy conference, and I was helping an author sell books. And there was a woman who came up to me out of the blue. I'd never met her. I didn't talk to her before this. And she came up to me, and the first things out of her mouth, she said, you know, my grandparents were Jews. And I said, wow, well, that yeah (laughs) mike i was thinking that (laughs) and 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 by the way as i say this it's not that we're unkind to jews we we're as we love all people the idea though that she had in her mind was there was something special and unique about her because of her physical ancestry and you and i in our vernacular would say well with that you can get what a cup of coffee with your ancestry See, see all that matters in God's kingdom is if you fled to the Son because it's only through the Son and his righteousness that you can have his atonement and be covered over so that you can stand in the presence of a holy and righteous God. But yet here's a woman who's going to a prophecy contra- conference and she's boasting not in Christ but in who she is. Right? So what's the spirit of prophecy according to the book of Revelation? Isn't it Jesus Christ? That's the point. If we don't confess Christ, we're not understanding prophecy, right? So it's troubling. And so we have to re- realize, um, hold on one second, we just have to realize that if you're going to be part of the kingdom, you're going to be a believer, it doesn't matter what your ethnicity is. What matters is if you're a believer in Jesus. Okay, I'm sorry. Go ahead, Eric. Yeah, I was just going to say that one verse stuck out to me that said, if, if you're uh, circumcised, then Christ is of no value to you. yeah, So it's like he goes you know, beyond just not...
1: That circumcise
0: our believers, but if you're trusting in circumcision, then Christ is of no value. Amen. Well said. Yeah, you've actually fallen off of the, the ship of grace, haven't you? If you go to circumcision, what you've said is Christ and your faith in him is insufficient. Christ is not sufficient for salvation. So there is an implication by doing something beyond Christ that you're saying that he's not sufficient. Absolutely. Very well said. Okay, now let's go to the second thing that we have to keep straight, and that is that former Jew and Gentile distinctions are now irrelevant under the new covenant. Okay, now I had a lot more to read, but for the sake of time, let me just scroll down. I've got a passage I want to put up. I was going to put up the whole context, but we don't have time for that. Let me put up Hebrews 8.13. There it goes. Hebrews 8.13 Listen to the writer of Hebrews. He says, when he said a new covenant, he was, he has made the first obsolete, but whatever is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to disappear. Now, the big point I want you to see here, just to boil it down for the sake of time, notice the writer of Hebrews, this is scripture, this is God saying this, is that the old covenant has been made obsolete. Okay. Now in the old covenant, you were a member of it. And you had privileges and responsibilities by being a physical descendant of Abraham. In other words, you could be under the Old Covenant just by being born. But how are you a member of the New Covenant? In the New Covenant, the only way that you can be a part of it is by being born again. So the big distinction that I want you to see between the Old Covenant and the New is the Old Covenant was comprised of believers and non-believers. Because you could be born a Jew circumcised on the eighth day as a boy and never believe in Yahweh your whole life and be part of the covenant community in the sense that you had obligations and even privileges because at least you'd hear the word, you had some of Yahweh's protections, etc. Okay, But in the new covenant, it's radically different. It's a better promise because it's comprised of those who have been circumcised within their heart and therefore it's comprised of only believers. Now, if that's the case then, the distinctions of Sabbath, keeping, of circumcision, and of the dietary laws of the Old Covenant, those are gone. Why? Because the Old Covenant's been made obsolete. right? So the distinctions then between Jews and Gentiles, they really don't matter. God used these distinctions to separate Jew and Gentile to protect the Messianic seed promise. But now that the Messiah has come, you don't need to be divorced from Gentiles, through circumcision, through Sabbath keeping, and through the food laws. Why? Because Messiah is here. So the old covenants made obsolete. And evidence of this is seen by what Paul says in Ephesians two fourteen through 15. Notice it says, for he himself, that's talking about Jesus. He is our peace who made both groups. So he's talking about Jews and Gentiles. He made both groups into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall. By abolishing in his flesh the enmity, which is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so that he himself, he might make the two into one new man, thus establishing peace. Now, notice this, what I have highlighted in red. It says the barrier of the dividing wall. I think that in Paul's mind, in his imagery that comes to his mind, is probably this value trade that was in the temple You see, in the temple that the Jews had in Jerusalem, there was a balustrade. And what it did is it divided the Gentiles from the Jews. In fact, in Greek and in Latin and in Hebrew, it would say no Gentiles beyond this point. And so there was a dividing wall. The Gentiles were excluded from the temple of God. Now, to be very clear, though, if that's the imagery that's in Paul's mind, I think it probably is. Notice what he says that dividing wall specifically is. He says it right here. He says, which is the law of commandments. That's what separated Jews and Gentiles. That was the balustrade. straight. It wasn't a physical wall only in the temple, but it was the Mosaic covenant because Jews had to keep Sabbath. They had to keep circumcision and they kept dietary regulations. They never mingled with the Gentiles. But now in Jesus Christ, that's been taken out. It's now obsolete. He broke down that barrier in the new covenant. And notice what did he do? He made one new man. So Jews and Gentiles now are together. And therefore, there's no distinctions between Jews and Gentiles in the new covenant. You shouldn't make them. Why? Because all that matters is faith in Jesus Christ. All right? So if someone says that they're keeping circumcision, well, what they're doing is they're putting themselves under bondage. If someone says, "Well, you know what? I'm closer to God because I keep these dietary food laws." All they're doing is they're putting themselves back under the Stoic. Yet. Yeah. Right. Years ago, I attended a couple Messianic congregations. Yeah. And I found this to be true. And also, I've heard from other people that around the world, this is not always true, but typically that these Messianic congregations they still adhere to the law they they don't want to give that part of it uh up yeah well said brian it's very problematic it it very much is um i don't say there i don't think they're seeing clearly this idea that that old covenant has been made obsolete and now we're under a new lawgiver jesus christ think about jesus let's go to the book of matthew and just think our way through it jesus is baptized And what happens after his baptism? So just think about Israel was baptized through the Red Sea. Jesus was baptized. Well, after Israel was baptized through the Red Sea, where are they brought? Well, they're brought into the wilderness for how long? For 40 years. Well, in the book of Matthew, after Jesus is baptized, he's brought into the wilderness for how long? For 40 days, right? Well, Israel fell. Jesus succeeded. Okay, so he's the faithful son that Israel never was. Well, right after Jesus succeeds in the wilderness, where does he go in Matthew 5? He goes to his own mount. The, right, He goes to give his law. And he says, you have heard it said, but I say to you. So now we have a new lawgiver, a new mediator, and a new covenant. And so Jesus Christ and his apostles are the new lawgivers, aren't they? And so therefore, why go back to circumcision and all these other things? Those distinctions have been broken down. That dividing wall is no longer with us. We have to keep that straight. Okay, now, the third thing for the sake of time that we have to keep straight is that Jesus Christ's kingdom will be established in national Israel. It really will. The kingdom is not coming to Minnesota. It's not coming to our new sports stadium. It's not coming to Toronto or London. The headquarters will be in Jerusalem. And tied in with this is the idea that God is faithful to his promises that he made. When he said in Ezekiel 37, 25, that they shall live on the land that I have given them and my servant David will be the prince over them, he meant it. And he's going to be faithful to those promises because God is the only promise keeper. So we have to keep this straight in our minds. And this is the one that's being rejected by those who like to replace Israel completely with the church. Okay. So, here's a passage I want you to think about. Now, before I read this, Acts 1, 6 through 7, remember, what was the topic at hand in the beginning of Acts? Well, didn't Jesus teach them about the kingdom of God for 40 days? That must have been quite a series. That's one we wouldn't have wanted on tape because here Jesus in his resurrected body is teaching about the kingdom of God. Well, notice right after that, here's the question of the disciples, Acts 1, 6 through 7. So, when they had come together, they were asking him, saying, Lord... Is it at this time you are restoring the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know the times or epochs which the Father has fixed by his own authority. Now, if ever there was a time for Jesus to set it straight that there, no, there is no kingdom that's coming to Israel because of their sinfulness, and in fact it's spiritually fulfilled in the church, and it's going to be fulfilled by Gentiles only, or primarily Gentiles, this is the time to clarify. But what he instead clarifies is it's not for you to know the timing. Now, remember, he had been talking to them about the kingdom of God. And what they're really asking is now, is the timing now? And he says, it's not for you to know that. But he does not negate the fact that, yes, the kingdom is coming to Israel. Now, what's very interesting is notice the term restoring. The term in the Greek is used again later in Acts 3, 19 through 21. Apokathistemi, the idea of restoring. And it's a very loaded term because it has to do with the restoring of Israel that was promised in the prophets of old. So turn your Bibles ahead in Acts chapter 3. I want you to see how this is used again by Peter in his second sermon. Acts 3, 19 through 21. This is the conclusion of his second sermon. I want you to see this term restoration come up again. Acts 3, 19 through 21. Peter says, therefore repent and return. Now here's the reason they should do that. He says, so that... Your sins may be wiped away in order that times of refreshing, that's a loaded term, talking about the new eschatological age. The times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord and that he may send Jesus, the Christ appointed for you, whom heaven must receive until the period of restoration. There's the noun form of all things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from ancient time. Now, how does that term restoration, or in Acts 1, 6 through 7, restoring, how is it used in the Old Testament? Well, in Ezekiel 17, there's a promise that God would restore the branch of David. In the book of Jeremiah, in this is in the Septuagint, it's Jeremiah twenty seven nineteen, But in our, our Masoretic text, it's Jeremiah 50, verse 19. Now you might say, why is there such a discrepancy? We don't have time for that now. <laughs> it's the same material, it's just arranged differently. But in Jeremiah, the term restoring was to do, has to do with Israel as a whole. And so this term restoring is loaded with the restoring of the kingdom of David and ethnic Israel into their land. Okay, so my point in saying that is the very question, What is it this time that you are restoring? That's a loaded term. That's a term that's specifically about the kingdom coming to Israel. And then Peter cites it again in Acts 3 after Pentecost, after the Holy Spirit has come. In other words, Peter didn't get it wrong here because if he got it wrong here, he gets it wrong again in Acts 3 after Pentecost came. So no one can claim, well, you know, he didn't have the spirit at this time. Well, he said the same thing in Acts chapter 3 after he had the spirit that there's going to be a restoration, and that restoration is of Israel. Okay, now, we see Paul teach the same thing. And I know I went over, af, over this last time, but it just bears repeating. Romans eleven twenty six 26 through 28. Notice Paul says here, And in this way, all Israel will be saved, as it is written, the Deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob, and this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. As regards the gospel... Now, listen to what he says in verse 28. As regards the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. Now, let's stop there. They are enemies. What is the referent? Who is the they? Well, when you look, the referent is clearly all Israel. Now, to a a Reformed theologian, now, we agree with a lot of Reformed theology, but some Reformed theologians have replaced Israel with the church, have they not? And their argument here would be, well, all Israel is every believer, Jew and Gentile. Well, how can every believer, Jew and Gentile, all Israel, be enemies regarding the gospel? Well, if you're a believer, you're not an enemy of the gospel. You're a believer in the gospel. And so certainly, they are enemies as a reference to all Israel. And who were the enemies of the gospel? It was ethnic Israel. So when Paul says all Israel will be saved, he's talking about ethnic Israel. Because the only way to get around that is to say, well, you had believers, Jews, and Gentiles who were enemies of the gospel. That doesn't make any sense. And so if you create a contradiction, you have to go back and say, I made a mistake. I can't, all Israel cannot be every believer, Jew, and Gentile. It must be ethnic Israel in that passage. And so Paul is clearly saying there's a plan for them. And so therefore we know then that God is faithful to all of his Old Testament promises. That in Isaiah 2 and Isaiah 11, and all of the passages in the Old Testament where it promised that one day the nations would come forth to Israel, God would reign from Zion, the wolf would lie down with the lamb, they would not hurt or destroy in his holy mountain. In Zechariah 14, you have the nations come to bring homage and to honor Yahweh in Jerusalem. Is it in Minnesota? Is it in Rome? No. It's in Jerusalem. And so that's what Paul's saying is there, there really is a kingdom that's still coming to Israel. And in mass, they will come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. As it says in Zechariah 12, 10, they'll look upon the one whom they'd pierced, and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only child. Alright, so those are the three things I think we have to keep straight. Number one, the only way to be saved is to be a believer in Jesus Christ. Number two, the distinctions between Jews and Gentiles of the Old Covenant, those are broken down. Number three, the kingdom is still coming to Israel. God is not forsaken his promises. And if we keep those three items straight, then we're not going to fall off either side of the theological spectrum. We're not going to fall into error. The dispensationalist on the one hand who says, well, there's nothing in common between Jews and Gentiles. There was two different plans. The old, you were saved by works, now you're saved by faith. Well, that's, most dispensationalists don't believe that, but that was the old version, right? Or the replacement theologian who says, well, church, is really the new Israel, there's no plan for Israel, they're all done. No, that's not true either. Okay, now any, any questions on any of this? Yeah. Eric. I don't want to bring in a, something that's going to be a big tangent, but my understanding is, in other words, national Israel will be, the nation will be restored. God is not okay. done with the nation of Israel. Amen. But individual Jewish people, like individual Gentiles, everyone Individual salvation is through Jesus Christ alone. Oh, yeah. We can't forget that and just forget about Jewish people. Now, how God is going to yeah. is gonna do all of this, of course, uh, that's a whole other subject, and probably none of us really understand it that thoroughly. But yeah. I think that, that that is the fact, though, isn't it? We're talking about national Israel, God's plan in the end times. Exactly it's a right. nation. Okay. Exactly right. In fact, um, I don't... Why didn't I... I don't know why I don't have... I'm here. I'm, a, I'm supposed to be a pastor. And I don't have my Bible. <laughs> um, does anybody... Yeah. Th- well, you know what? I can get mine. I think it's in my bag here. I just want... You know, turn your Bibles, if you will, to Zechariah chapter 12. Let me just show you, because you, you raise a great point, uh, combining this idea of the, both the national and the individual. What you'll see is the way in which national Israel is going to be restored is by individuals in mass in Israel coming to faith in Jesus. So you break up a great point. And a great passage that shows this is Zechariah twelve, verse ten. It's one that's very uh, profound. I'm sorry, Zechariah twelve ten. Notice what he says here in Zechariah 12.10. He's talking about the pouring out of the Spirit. And who is the Spirit being poured out upon? He says, And I will pour on the house of David in the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy, so that when they look on me, now notice the change, on him whom they have pierced, they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps for over a firstborn. Now, what's interesting, I think it's in John 19, when Jesus is crucified, the first portion of this is cited, where it says they will look upon the one whom they pierced. But the rest of it isn't cited. And that's the part of it where it says, and they will mourn for him as an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps for a firstborn. That occurs in the book of Revelation, where they come to repentance. Yes, they saw Jesus crucified. But they didn't have the spirit poured out upon them in mass, in the sense that they were unable to believe and mourn. And so this mourning is a spirit in which they're sorrowful for crucifying their Messiah. Is that happened yet? No, it's certainly not happened yet. The majority of Israel doesn't give one hoot that Jesus was crucified. In fact, I would assume that the majority of them were glad. If they were there living then, they would do it again. And the majority of the world would. The world hasn't gotten better, but this is a promise where they're sorrowful. And the implication of this sorrow isn't just, well, we're sorry, but one of repentance, turning to him. And so that's a work that you're saying: look, this is going to happen on an individual basis in the hearts of Israelites, but it's going to happen in mass. So you're going to have many people within Israel restored and actually turning to the Messiah. So and as we say that now, we want people to turn now. Because when the day of the Lord comes, it's obviously a dicey situation. I mean, nobody's guaranteed tomorrow. So now is the time to turn to the Lord. But you're right, in mass, God is going to do that. Yep, thank you. It's a great point. So, is it, okay, anybody else have any questions or comments? Okay, now let's move on then. I want to show you that God seals from the 12 tribes. Revelation 7, 5 through 8. He says, from the tribe of Judah, 12,000 were sealed. From the tribe of Reuben, twelve thousand. From the tribe of Gad, twelve thousand. From the tribe of Asher, twelve thousand. From the tribe of Naphtali, twelve thousand. From the tribe of Manasseh, twelve thousand. From the tribe of Simeon, twelve thousand. From the tribe of Levi, twelve thousand. From the tribe of Issachar, twelve thousand. From the tribe of Zebulun, twelve thousand. From the tribe of Joseph, twelve thousand. From the tribe of Benjamin, twelve thousand were sealed. Wow. It's kind of like reading the phone book, isn't it? Now, I want you to think about that. I think John is making it very specific that he's talking about Israel here. But what I want to start doing is focusing on the list of the different tribes. We have 12 of them listed. What's very interesting is in the Old Testament, there's 29 different variations of how the tribes are listed. And what I want to do is work with that. And I want to show you, that the reason John lists the tribes that he does and the order that he does is to show us the primacy of Christ in Judah, but also to point us to the problem of idolatry. And I'll show you how he does that. But first of all, let me just give you a provisional list as to how in the Old Testament they would list the tribes. Just so you realize there's no contradictions in Scripture, there are simply different, different ways of reinforcing or focusing on something. So, for example, in Genesis 29... 32 that's 29 verse 32 all the way to genesis 35 18 when the list of the tribes of israel are given it's according to their order of birth why because there's a narrative it just records how they're born right well then when you get to genesis 49 3 through 27 the tribes are listed again but now it's in regarding the order of blessing that jacob gives when you get to numbers 2 3 through 7 they're listed according to their order of encampment. Okay? So realize you're, just, you're, not, you're having the same data, as it were, but they're just listed differently. At Numbers 26, 4 through 51, it's according to the order of census before their invasion in Canaan. When you get to Deuteronomy 27, 12 through 13, it's according to the order of blessings and cursing. When you get to Deuteronomy 33, it's an order of Moses' blessing. And then the coup de grace, as my brother would say... When you get to Deuteronomy, or excuse me, Ezekiel chapter 48, remember you have the different gates in the New Jerusalem? Well, then the tribes are listed, but it's according to the arrangement of the gates. And so what I want you to realize is there's no contradictions in Scripture, but there's just different focuses, okay? Now, the other thing I want you to be aware of is before we turn off of this screen, notice the term sealed, these tribes are sealed. And again, it's national Israelites who are chosen by God for a purpose. And we'll get more into their purpose when we get to chapter 14. But they are going to be those who stand for Jesus Christ. They'll more than likely be used by him to proclaim the gospel, right? But notice that they're sealed. And the term that's used there is a divine passive. It's spragizzo, So they're sealed by God for his purpose. They're, they belong to Jesus Christ. And I want you to think of this idea of sealing and how precious it is because it has to do with ownership. Uh, think about it in Ephesians 4.30. We're commanded by Paul not to blaspheme the Holy Spirit, right? Uh, and not to grieve him, it says. By whom we've been sealed, the same term, until the day of redemption. So we belong to God. But later on, when we get to Revelation chapter 13, there's a different term that's used and that's krogma. And that's a mark. It's not a seal but it's a mark for those who belong to the beast. And so what you're seeing then is a contrast between who, the question is, who do you belong to? Do you belong to Jesus Christ? You've been sealed. Or do you belong, do you have the mark of the beast? Do you belong to Satan? So it's that stark. So anyone who tells you today, well, we got to stop binary reductionism now. That's what I heard in seminary. We can't have either or. No, it's going to be that stark. It's either you belong to God, you, you are sealed because you came to faith in Jesus Christ. Or you have the mark of the beast. That's that stark at the end. And so these 12,000 from each tribe, the 144,000 belong to God. Now, I want to talk a little bit about the order. The order is unusual here, the, the tribes that are listed. So let me go back and talk a little bit about how these tribes came about. Remember Jacob? He had two wives, didn't he? Remember Laban pulled some trickery on him? One of his wives was Leah. And through Leah, he had Reuben, that was his firstborn. He had Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, and Zebulun. Well, then he had a concubine. Oh, I'm sorry, I got Rachel up first. Uh, this is his other wife. This is his beloved, right? And through her, he had Joseph and Benjamin. Well, then you come to the concubines. Billah, that's Rachel's servant. You had Dan and Naphtali. And then through, this is the servant of Leah. Zilpah, you had Gad and Asher. So those are the 12 tribes. Those are the 12 sons of Jacob. But notice in our list... That you have in Revelation 7, you have Manasseh listed, but you don't have Dan listed, right? And what I want to do is explain how that all came about. Remember, Joseph ends up being given the double portion of the inheritance, right? Now, where do we find that? Well, you can read about it in 1 Chronicles chapter 5. But I want you all to remember that Reuben had sinned and he had cheated on his dad by going um, having a sexual affair with his uh, concubine. I think it was Zilpah, if I recall. And so what happens then is Jacob ends up giving his firstborn blessing to Joseph. So Joseph then is often given his blessing to his two sons, which were Manasseh and Ephraim. Okay, they're given blessing. So now this complicates matters because sometimes in your list, Joseph is the true son. But sometimes he's not listed and you'll see, for instance, Manasseh or you'll see Ephraim. Those are the sons of Joseph. The reason you see that is because he was given the double portion because of the sin of Reuben. Does that make sense? So what I want to do is kind of go through this. Why is it that John uses the order in the list he does? Well, first of all, Judah's listed first. Normally it'd be Reuben because he's the firstborn. But Judah's listed, listed first by John because of the primacy of the... Tribe of Judah. In fact, turn your Bibles to Genesis forty nine ten. I want you to see that it was God who chose to give primacy to bring about the Messiah through the tribe of Judah. Now, this is the blessing, of course, that Jacob is giving to his sons, but God is really speaking through him in this regard. Genesis forty nine ten. Very interesting passage. I believed I used the NET Bible. I think the NET Bible nails it here. When you um, do a lot of work in the Hebrew and th- so forth. Genesis 49.10, the Net Bible says, The scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet. Now, let me just stop there. Between his feet is a euphemism. Um, it's a euphemism for the, the male parts, if, if you know what I'm saying, because it's the idea of procreation. Okay? So the idea is the scepter will not depart from the procreative parts of Judah, he says, until he comes to whom it belongs, the nations will obey him. And I think that's the best rendering of the Hebrew. Notice the phrase, until he comes, to whom it belongs. That is the coming of the Messiah to whom the scepter belongs. I think it's a messianic reference. And so the great promise was that the scepter would never depart from Judah. They would be the primary tribe from which the house of David would spring and eventually the Messiah himself. Okay, so if someone defects against Judah, what are they doing? They're sinning against God, aren't they? Well, that's exactly what Ephraim did. They are one of the northern tribes who attacked Israel or or Judah. Okay? So, uh, Revelation 5.5. I have another reference for you. Listen to what it says here in Revelation 5.5. It says, One of the elders said to me, Stop weeping. Remember, the question was, Who is worthy of opening up the, the seals? He says, Stop weeping. Behold, the lion that is from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has overcome so as to open the book and its seven seals. So Jesus is from that tribe, and therefore, that's why it's given primacy. But here's the... Oops, I went backwards. Here's the next question we have to wrestle with. Joseph's given this double portion. The reason why is because, again, Reuben sinned. And so he had given some of his allotments to Manasseh and Ephraim. But if you'll notice, Ephraim is not in the list in your Revelation account. Do you all notice that? Okay. And also Dan is excluded. Well, why is Dan excluded? Well, they're excluded because of their idolatry. They were a tribe that was notoriously idolatrous. In fact, they were the ones who wanted to set up graven images all the time. And so you have an exclusion here, I think, in the list in Revelation because of their idolatry. Idolatry is a huge issue in the book of Revelation. So isn't it interesting here this tribe is excluded from being mentioned even in the New Covenant In the book of Revelation, I think more than likely because of their idolatry. The other one that's listed is Ephraim. Ephraim was the one who attacked Judah. And if you're attacking Judah, you can read about this in Isaiah 7. In fact, we had um, Adam O'Lean brought us through the great promise of the Messiah, the virgin birth. Well, in Isaiah chapter 7, if you read that passage, Ephraim is attacking the people of Judah. And if they're attacking Judah, what are they attacking? They're attacking the Messianic promise, aren't they? The Davidic promise. And so they also went into idolatry, and so they're excluded. And so what I think we can conclude is that there's a call away from idolatry. And we see that time and time again in the book of Revelation. And so I think this is our application in this passage. The problem of idolatry in Revelation. Think about the Nicolaitans. By the way, I always think of Nickelodeon. I don't know why. Every time I see that, I think maybe my boy shouldn't be... Watching Nickelodeon, and then I think, well, wait, that's the Nicolaitans. The Nicolaitans, what did they do? Well, they led people into idolatry. And they did it by bringing people into sexual immorality, just like Balaam did. And they did it by bringing people into worship and serving idols, more than likely to get along with the surrounding culture so that they could keep their real estate. But God was aghast by that. You have the problem with Jezebel. Jezebel led people into sexual immorality, no different than Balaam did. Remember, Balaam couldn't pronounce a curse upon Israel, but he could make them stumble. How did he do it? By putting the Moabite women in their path? That's exactly what Jezebel and the Nicolaitans were doing. You see, the deep things of Satan, Revelation 2.24, those who were boasting say, hey, let us sin so that grace may abound. You want to see grace? Let's really sin it up. We'll get into the deep things of Satan because we know we have freedom, but yet who said that they didn't? Remember, we're bound in the new covenant by what Jesus and his apostles said. And they were claiming freedom that they didn't have. They were going into idolatry and the deep things of Satan. The, the synagogue of Satan, Revelation 3.9, these are Jews who were claiming to be Jews, but they really weren't, were they? Because they had compromised in idolatry. They didn't come to Christ. They were compromising with the culture. So it's idolatry all the way through here in the first chapters. Being lukewarm, that was the church of Laodicea. Remember the image? You're neither cold... Nor are you hot, but because you're lukewarm, I spit you out of my mouth. Remember, there was hot water that came from Hierapolis. Hot water was therapeutic. Cold water was piped in from another neighboring town. Cold water was life-giving. Remember, in the ancient Near East, they didn't have refrigeration. They didn't have a lot of filtration systems, right? And so life-giving water was cold water. But the imagery was Laodicea was neither. Because they had rejected Jesus, they were into idolatry. And so later, we're going to see this idolatry culminate in Revelation 9, where at the sixth trumpet, you have a third of humanity dies because of their idolatry. But then he goes on to say the rest of mankind who are not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands so as not to worship demons and the idols of gold and the silver and of brass and of stone and of wood, which can neither see nor hear nor walk. So you're going to see this problem of idolatry all the way through the book of Revelation. People will not repent of it. Now, notice that phrase, the work of their hands. That's used oftentimes in the Old Testament for referring to sinful acts. In fact, you'll see it used in Deuteronomy 4.28. Listen to this. It says, There you will serve God's, the work of man's hands, wood and stone, which neither see, nor hear, nor eat, nor smell. Isaiah 2.8 says, Their land has been filled with idols, the worship and work of their hands, that which their fingers have made. Now, what's the great remedy to the works of our hands? That is, to idolatry? Well, turn your Bible. It's something that Baba taught us in Colossians 2.11. We'll end with this. Colossians 2.11. Turn your Bibles there. The only way out from this idolatry is to turn to Christ. But you and I of ourselves can't do that. We need the work of God's hands. Colossians 2.11, Paul said, And in him you were also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. Now let's stop there a moment. Every time with hands is mentioned in the Old Testament, it's usually a sinful act committed by humanity. It's idolatry. So what's needed then is an act by God. It's without hands the circumcision is done. It's a circumcision of the heart, isn't it? In the removal of the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Jesus Christ effected a circumcision within our heart by God's power through the Spirit enabling us to believe. And so, brothers and sisters, it's God's power by bringing us to the gospel that we can escape the idolatry. And I want you to think about how important that is. You had tribes of Israel that were not included in the 144,000 because they fled into idolatry rather than fleeing to Christ. Brothers and sisters, I think we can learn from this, to flee from idolatry. And the only way we can do it is by God's power, through trusting in Jesus Christ, being those who realize that Jesus Christ and his apostles are the lawgivers through the new covenant. It's not anyone else. And again, that's only something that God can do in our hearts. So I think that that's what we can conclude then from this passage. So with that, let me uh, close in prayer. Next week, if you would, read... The following verses, before I um, pray here, read Revelation 7, verses 9 through 17, and we're going to be wrestling with where these people are coming from that are being martyred. Are they currently coming out of the tribulation, or are they coming out uh, from the church age? And that's something we're going to have to be wrestling with. So read that passage in context and see if you can determine where exactly these people are coming out of, what time period. Is it the church age, or is it specifically the 70th week of Daniel? So with that, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your great truths in Scripture. We thank you, Lord, that you've circumcised our hearts so that we can come to faith in your Son, that we can flee from idolatry and the works of our hands. We thank you, Lord, for your Son, that he would shed his blood to atone for our sins, that he lived the perfect life that none of us could, so that through faith in him, we could have righteousness, a righteousness that comes from you. We thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen.